Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here with me and to share this interview with Jessica Osborne of Privy Label. Jessica works with brands to do small batch manufacturing here in the U.S., In our interview, she talks through the difference between small batch versus custom on-demand production, and she guides us through the different pricing structures and the two different production models between those. We also go through how the production process for small brand manufacturing works. She has some really fun stories on strategies her clients have successfully used to sell and get their designs into boutiques. And she also talks about different ways you can strategize to make your production more efficient and cost effective. So much great stuff packed into our conversation. As always, I want to thank you guys for listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. And I will remind you that if you like this podcast, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And it would be so, so, so exciting if you would also leave a review. I do want to share a quick review uh, that Mitchie Poo Poo, yes, that is his username on iTunes, shared about the SFD podcast. He says, as a young fashion professional and creative entrepreneur, I appreciate this podcast so much. Heidi does such an amazing interview full of great bits of relevant industry information. The entrepreneurs on the show are so inspiring and aspirational. This podcast is bleeping amazing. Yes, there is a nice F-bomb in there. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mitchie Poo, and I'm glad that you think the podcast is bleeping amazing. Uh, So listen, you guys, if you love listening to, I would be so grateful to hear from you in an iTunes review. You can do that anytime at sfdnetwork.com slash review or just scroll down if you're listening on iTunes right now. I would love to give you a shout out here on the air. As always, if you want to check out the show notes, scroll down wherever you're listening. They should be at the bottom of the show description. And for now, let's jump on to the interview with Jessica. Welcome, Jessica, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Can you start out by introducing yourself to everyone and letting us know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Jessica Osborne, and I am the CEO and founder of Privy Label, and we help brands and boutiques create their own custom clothing lines from design through delivery, working solely with uh, small batch manufacturers in the USA. Awesome. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started in the fashion industry? You know, what was, what was your history that kind of led to where you're at now? Totally. So I started out working for actually a startup clothing brand based in New Orleans. We were doing athleisure for men and women, and I was hired as their first um, like creative designer. And they basically went from an unknown brand to a brand that's carried in Nordstrom's and REI's um, across the country now. So it was like a lot of growth in a small um, window, about five years of working there. And I got to work with factories overseas and really got to design a like full you know, kind of variety of different styles for men and women. You know, our core was athleisure and activewear, but we also ended up branching out into um, kind of workwear, regular everyday workwear as well. So it was just uh, an amazing experience. I had a technical designer on the team who was from Under Armour, and she taught me a lot, and it was just a very um, in-depth, like, learn-by-fire kind of situation. <laughs> So um, after, and I, I mean, I did all of their quality as well. So it was just a lot of, um, it was a lot of work and I learned so much and I was ready to kind of take what I had learned and apply it to, to this new company. Awesome. And so when was that? When did you start Privy Label? 
a year ago. Oh, well, congrats on your first year. That's really exciting. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So talk a little bit about like what kind of brand specifically you work with and, and how the whole process goes. If a brand out there is listening and needs some kind of support, you know, what exactly are the types of brands you guys work with and how does that whole process sure. work? Sure. So we work with really a large variety of brands. Uh, I've got a brand that's doing high-end luxury dresses for women. I've got um, menswear, um, activewear, um, and then also like working with small boutiques that want to um, add just like a, a line of private label dresses to their store um, from day dresses to cocktail. So really a large variety. Um, and I like to work with kind of moved away from doing hourly consulting. And, and what we really like is to work with a, a client um, from beginning to end. So them coming to us with an idea, with a sketch, with kind of like the beginning at the beginning stages of, of what they want to do. And then we can help them with um, sourcing uh, fabrics, labels, trims, and then we have four um, pattern makers and seamstresses that work with me locally. I'm based in New Orleans, and they, um, you know, they have a wide variety of experience. Probably some of them have over 20 years of experience, some, you know, 10, 30. It's like a large, kind of a large range of experience on their end. And so we do all the sample development. We host fittings. Um, if you're not in the city, we, which most of my clients aren't, we just do video chats in the night, or some people fly in for the fittings. And, or, and then after the fitting, I will send the sample to the client. We kind of go back and forth making the edits until we get to that fit approved prototype. And then once we get there, I have a network of about seven different U.S. manufacturers that uh, specialize in, in, or are okay with working with small uh, minimums. So one on-demand manufacturer that I'm partnered with that can work with minimums as low as literally one unit and and I'm not sure if everyone knows the difference between traditional and on-demand uh, manufacturing, but basically instead of making all of the stuff up front and then selling it, you sell it and then they make it as you sell it um, and drop ship it directly to your customers. And then the other partners that I have are traditional manufacturers that will work with minimums as low as 50 units. And so we do quality checks during the at the beginning of production and at the end of production before everything is shipped out to the client as well. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the on-demand. I mean, it's something that I think a lot of people are talking about and is a really cool sort of direction to go in terms of, you know, not overproducing product that you can't sell. Um, can you talk yes. a little bit more about how some of your clients are strategizing to, uh, you know, create that type of business model? Sure. So, um, for example, one of the boutiques that I'm working with is um, throwing kind of a party whenever the, the line launches in her store and it is planning to take, we're going to have a, a set of samples there for the clients, I mean, for her customers to try on in each color and size. And then everyone can come to the party, try on the dress and then pick their, even we're even supplying like special trims. So you can like pick trim. There's a lot of customization that's available an uh, on-demand production that isn't in traditional manufacturing. So we're offering it in four colors. They're going to be able to pick different trims and kind of make their own, design their own dress in a way. Um, and then we'll place those orders with the manufacturer and they'll be shipped to the end customer within 10 working days. Wow. That is um, I'm, I'm, I'm so curious to know, um, like, what's the complexity of these designs? Um, this is a pretty simple design. Okay. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's nothing, it's nothing too crazy. However, and they, they definitely are, are limiting themselves to pretty simple designs at this point. So, like, they, this manufacturer's been around for about seven years, um, but they are kind of just branching out into, like, they're making their first blazers right now. So, like, they, they can do fully lined dresses, they can do, um, they can do a lot, any, basically anything in a knit they can do. Yeah. Um, so there are some limitations to like the types of, 
of think they can't do like uh, full men um, button up shirts. That's something that that isn't on their their list right now. Gotcha. But it's it's an amazing facility. Fully like they have um, so much computer programming that's that's gone into the process. Yeah. And, and like every single sewing station has a a large monitor um, at the sewing station. <laughs> wow. It's very. It's definitely the future. Yeah. That's really cool. I mean. And um, yeah. I mean, we're getting a little sidetracked into this, but it just it was something you said. Kind of. No, no, no. It's fine because you piqued my interest, and it's kind of where I led the conversation. Um, so just staying on topic with this, and then we'll jump back to a few other things. I'm so curious to know, like. Are the price points in a range that are workable for the brand and the end customer, or are, are is this start to lean sure. pretty high price? Um, that's a great question, and I have priced out quite a few price comparisons with different styles, and they are very competitive with other U.S. manufacturers. Wow! So their pricing is actually is pretty darn good. Um, the, um, what I will say in general is that U.S. manufacturing is expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't work with anyone who is planning to, to sell something for under $100. Like, it, that's kind of my limit. Um, because if you want to do small batch manufacturing in the U.S., then you need to, you need to be okay with selling it for over $100 or just not making that much money on it in the beginning. Mm, so. Gotcha. Based on, you know, doing, like, one unit for on demand or even, you know, 50 or 100 units, just the price points. Even, you can't, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to, you can absolutely get away with making 500 units of something um, at, a, at a larger facility and, and get that, get the price down. But all of my clients are not interested in making 500 units. Yeah. Um, it's just not where I'm, it's not what my focus is. Okay. All right, cool. So let's jump back a little bit to the beginning. So let's say there's someone sure. out there listening who has an idea and they think that they're maybe ready to explore going into production. So they could come to you with a napkin sketch or just maybe some inspiration pictures and walk us through exactly. a little bit of that process. Because a lot of people out there listening are in that in that kind of position where they've got this idea and... They're like, where do I even so, go next? Yeah, so I um, am always love to start at that at that point when somebody you know put together either a PowerPoint for me with different ideas or sketch something, and basically I just kind of help refine the the design idea and we kind of go through it from top to bottom, inside out. I ask a lot of questions and and really get down to the the nitty gritty details as well as just the overall, like, sense of the style. Um, I love when a client can give me a reference fit garment, so something that um, is a physical, actual style that they like the fit of, and they want to, you know, mimic that fit but change different details and use different fabrics and, um, you know, you know what I'm saying, kind of. Yeah. Um, I think. So, so that's what... My job as a fashion designer is, is to really think about all the elements that come together that they might not be aware of that, that really make that style what it is. Okay. So you guys go through like the first initial design phase and kind of get the fit dialed in mm -hmm. and then what happens? So then we talk about fabrics and uh, they tell me like, I think I want a linen or if they have some type of direction. If not, then I'll suggest uh, different types of fabrics. And I put together a you know, curated collection of about five to eight different swatches. Um, depending on what price point they're looking for, I can do all lower price or all higher price. It's just, you know, it's totally up to the, um, you know, what their end goal is. And send that to them, and they make the final choice for, you know, what the fabric is going to be. And then we move into, once we have all the raw materials sourced, we, and all the style details worked out, I make a tech pack and we move into um, the first sample development pattern making and, and selling that first sample. Okay, cool. And what are you finding the timeline of some of these things to be like from idea to maybe getting the first sample made? So you, you've really kind of at this point, you've figured out the fit, the design, the fabric, and you have your tech pack. And as a, as someone out there with an idea, what am I looking at in terms of timeline from going from that first initial conversation where I kind of tell you my idea to having some sort of rough sample proof of concept in hands? Sure. 
Um, no, it's all depending on, a lot of it depends on, you know, the client and how, how, how refined their idea is, right? So if they come to me with like a very clear vision of like, this is exactly what I want and I just need to source the fabrics for them, that'll take about three to four weeks to get the sam- to get the samples, get a bunch of swatches in, send it to them, get their approval and then order the sample fabric. So you're looking at about a month for that process and then two weeks to get the pattern making and the first sample done. So a total of about six weeks. Okay, so pretty fast if I have, if like my idea is fairly refined. Exactly, yes. Okay. Yeah, and that's what everybody has been telling me that we are uh, one of the fastest. But from like working in the industry and working with overseas manufacturing, like that was a huge goal for me was to really localize the pattern making and sample sewing so that people, you know, the pattern makers and sample sewers are working directly with me in my city and it's a very quick turnaround for, for that because I think that's where the holdup kind of comes in a lot of people's process. Uh, okay, so you've really focused on finding local suppliers and vendors to speed up the process. It's kind of been the trick for you? Yes, yeah, and very, um, and very qualified as well. Like it's not like they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, very cool. And so, okay, so then you have your, we have the first sample done, and what does the process look like after that? So, first sample is done, which means the time for fitting. So, we, the fit model changes per client depending on, you know, who their target market is, but for the most part, it's, you know, someone in the mid-size, five range, man or woman, and um, we, they either come in for the fitting or, like I said, we do the video fitting, and we put that first sample on, and, and per usual, the first sample is not ever perfect, so <laughs> there, are always, there are always changes that need to be made and adjustments that need to be made and decisions and that are, you know, the client might even just decide, I don't even like that, like, I just want to change that mm. completely because it's your first time seeing it on the, you know, in real life. Yeah. So we that that first fitting is um, you know an exciting but sometimes I think disappointing for someone that's new to the industry because I really try to you know I try to explain in the beginning that and I'm sure you know like making samples is is an explorative process right like you you think you know what you want but then when you get it you realize oh maybe that's not what I want yeah um, and and so I really try to try to explain that to, to everyone up front and you know it's something that I, I think it's just like since it's their first time experiencing this process it's always kind of a surprise that it's going to take two or three samples to get to that final set approved sample. Yeah it's um, it's a very true story I've experienced this firsthand many times of like sometimes when it comes out in fabric it just it's not working the way you thought it was going to in your head or you just wind up wanting to make a lot of change wanting to make a lot of changes and that's just a natural part of the process so it's good for people to understand that um, so then you so you kind of get it dialed in over a few samples and then do you guys dive right into production from there so it's it's up to the the client. Some people want to move right into production. Others want to take time to take those samples, do photo shoots, you know, really build an audience, and uh, maybe even do a Kickstarter campaign. Everybody's plan to launch is slightly different, and it's not uh, it's not exactly something that I get involved in as far as the direction. Mm. You know, I'll always give feedback to clients, but it's not my specialty, and so I I tell everyone like. I'm your production and design partner, and I'm really, really good at that. But marketing and sales, like, I have a lot of great resources that I, and you're one of them, like, you're a great resource for, you know, how to be successful in the fashion industry, clearly it's the name of your, <laughs> of your podcast. Um, and I, I've, I've definitely sent out some of your podcast designs before. But anyways, um, so everybody has a different strategy. So once you get that final set of proof sample, it's up to the client on what they, how they want to move forward. Okay, gotcha. And how, I mean, I know it's not your, your exact expertise, but I'm curious to know how... Uh, are you are you seeing clients do some any interesting things that are proving to be uh, 
um, successful in terms of taking their samples and getting things out there, building audiences, building, you know, building up some momentum to have a successful launch? Um, yes. So I think, or one of the things that I've seen with a couple of my clients is, is reaching out to media outlets and that specifically to writers or um, editors that have some type of connection to like whatever niche market, you know, you're trying to address and, and explaining, you know, what they're doing and why it's special. And, and if they can get through to one of the better editors and get something published online um, that they can then share, it, it seems to be um, pretty helpful for, for driving that traffic to websites. Okay, cool. So just focusing on taking those samples and getting some publicity. Yes, exactly. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, Go ahead. And then I've, I've also, I've had a client that's literally done the most traditional thing of all, which is just <laughs> take her samples to stores and, you know, knock on doors. And, and she's gotten in quite a few really high-end boutiques just by doing that, which I know is, I mean, at this point, it's almost like, who does that anymore? <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, wow, she's literally, like, schlepping her clothes around and showing them to stores yeah. in person, and it's working? Right, isn't that, it's so, it's almost, like, so far-fetched that it's, like, it's coming back. <laughs> or, yeah, it's almost like no one is doing that anymore, so, the like, no one's mm -hmm. going out there to show the buyer stuff, so if you do, you're one of a few, and you get the attention. Yeah. Wow. I think so. I mean, it's, isn't that crazy? I yes, I love that. Like, wow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's like uh, whenever I was applying to jobs, you know, like everyone is applying online, applying online, applying in internships, like summer internships in school. And I was like, I'm just going to mail my, like, mail, mail my resume to, <laughs> and I would look up, like, who the VP of design is at the different companies. And I ended up getting a, an internship with Billabong um, out in California because I mailed my resume. And he was like, no one has ever done this. <laughs> oh, <crazy>. my gosh. <laughs> I love like, this so yeah. much. Isn't that hilarious? That's but amazing. Sometimes the thing that, the thing that went out of fashion is, is actually the best thing to do. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, it's like think about what people used to do and then – Everyone else is doing all the fancy new stuff. All you have to do is hit rewind and go back to that old thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. That's pretty funny. That yeah. is pretty funny. Um, really, really cool takeaway. I love that. And that's so awesome for your client to see that success. Um, good for her. So I'm. Um, how are you finding the, that most of these brands are funding? And on that same note... You know, and I know it depends on the product and it depends on the price point of the fabric and the complexity of the construction and there's so many variables. But just for people out there listening, um, can you talk a little bit about how people are funding and finding the finances to, you know, get everything off the ground? And then also, like, what are some of the price ranges you're seeing people needing to, um, and I don't mean individual item price ranges, but I mean in terms of budget price ranges to, you know, start from zero and get something kind of off the ground. Are we looking at $2,000? Are we looking at $20,000? Like just some rough price ranges and then where that money comes from. Okay. When you are asking, so for the first question, um, how are they getting the financing? It's pretty much 50, 50. Well, I wouldn't say that it's, I'm terrible at doing math in my head quickly, so I'll <laughs> throw that at the percentages. Um, but so some of them are self-financing, have using their savings. Some of them are, have raised money with friends and family, and some of them are established brands um, or stores that you know have the funding to to branch out into um, doing their own line. Okay. Um, so that's how you know my clients have been financing their project. Um, the, the amount of cash needed to launch, are you asking just about the development costs or are you asking about production costs as well? Well, let's, can we look at them as two separate numbers? Because sure. I think, you know, first you might think, okay, if I want to start a brand and I have, let's say two or three ideas for two or three pieces and I want to go from zero to samples so that then I have something to at least take photos of and maybe I can try to pre-sell or do a Kickstarter or mm -hmm. take those samples around to boutiques and get some orders to help fund the production. So what does it even take me to get from zero okay. to there? 
Yes. So from here to there, I recommend um, about five to six thousand dollars per okay. style. Per style. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. And that should, I mean, you know, obviously there's variables, but that should account for getting me through um, a few different sample iterations to, you know, dial everything in and then having a finished sample in the ac accurate fabric that I could use for however I needed to use it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then obviously production varies based on, you know, the cost of yeah. each unit. And the cost of each unit and how many units they want to do and how expensive their fabric is. Right. Um, because there's a huge, I have some clients using fabric that's $11 a yard and some that's like $2 a yard. Right. So that's like, a huge differentiator. Huge variable. Yeah. Huge yeah, variable. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I try to, and I also, that's something that I feel like is kind of overlooked when you're, when people are, um, you know, new individuals are starting brands is how much the cost of fabric really affects your overall cost of goods. Yeah. And, I mean, even reducing your fabric cost by, like, 50 cents is a big deal um, over over the course of production. So I'm always trying to, like, push, like, let's find the best-looking fabric for the cheapest price because it's going to save you so much money yeah. in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it does definitely add, I mean, all those pennies definitely add up. Um, are you finding, like, speaking of sort of fabric qualities and things like that, are you finding a lot of the designers you work with leaning towards a really sustainable type of products and materials or not so much? It is. It's about 50-50. Some, okay. it just depends on the brand. Some are like that's in their, um, you know, mantra of their brand. And one of their goals is to make sure that they are an eco-friendly company. And some, it's not, it's just not as important to them. Okay. And do you, um, as far as the, the cost to create something that's sustainable and arguably that's a very subjective term. So it's like, what does that even really mean? But, um, but I, but I asked the question because I have people, um, saying a lot, you know, sending me messages in my inbox or wherever saying things like, you know, everybody says they want ethical and sustainable, but then nobody's actually willing to pay for it because it is so expensive. And so the, the reason I asked that question is, you know, you from manufacturing and production side, like, what are you really seeing as some of the cost differentials between air quotes, you know, sustainable and ethical versus someone who doesn't even really consider any of those factors? Well, for me, because I'm working with, you know, vetted amazing u.s manufacturers like all of the manufacturing facilities are paying their people enough and mm -hmm. you know we don't have to worry about any uh, labor issues um and so that's kind of like a standard across all of the brands so i mean you can at least give everyone kudos for for doing that because um when you're working with an overseas production facility it's very it's a lot more difficult to, to figure out you know if they really are ethical and of course there are you know standards and um, credit certifications that these places can get. But um, so anyways, that's the first step is that they're choosing to do U.S. manufacturing and um, are paying a premium for that. So, so that, what I'm trying to say is like, that's almost like an equal, right? Sure. Across, across all the different brands sure. um, is what they're paying for labor and the fact that that is an ethical decision. Now, the fact, so then the other factor is really just the fabric and um, choosing organic or choosing um, certain fibers that maybe take less water to produce. Um, it's, to be honest, like the man-made fibers, like polyesters and nylons, um, you know, can sometimes be just as expensive, expensive as an organic cotton. Um, granted, if you're comparing like maybe more apple to apple, like cotton compared to organic cotton, like the regular non-organic cotton is way cheaper. Um, so it's, I mean, they're right. Like I, in, in some ways, but in other ways, like people that are using man-made, not recycled, you know, polyesters and nylons are, are paying a, a pretty penny as well. So I don't know um, if they're really saving that much money I don't think it's a money issue, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like, I don't think these, the 
my clients are choosing saying, I don't want to do sustainable because it's too expensive. Right. It's just not part of their like brand identity. Right. Know? Yeah. So it's interesting because I mean, obviously there's some things that they're going to have a bigger cost differential than others, but it sounds like on mm-hmm. some level, it's really not that huge of a difference. So it's like, you know, it almost just makes sense. Well, if the price is not the issue, then it makes sense to lean one direction versus another. I mean, of course it depends on your brand and, and all of that, but, um, yeah, I, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, I agree. I mean, personally, um, you know, I would agree. I would, I'm actually like, it's interesting because you started out, let's say about six years ago, working for a startup brand that wound up growing quite large. And you said it sold an REI and it sold a Nordstrom. And so, and now here you are for the last year doing, you know, helping other brands do this as well. And so, um, do you see any difference in the, what the industry was like, let's say six years ago, five years ago, when you were working with that first startup brand doing athleisure in terms of finding factories, maybe in the U S or finding suppliers that would give you low minimums and, um, small batch production, what, what existed five, six years ago versus what exists now? Like, what have you seen change in the industry and the resources that designers have available to them for these, you know, small batch production sure. and low minimums? Sure. Um, one of the major changes has been the creation of that website, Maker's Row. Um, I think they really helped, you know, give some visibility to U.S. manufacturing and how to find a small batch U.S. manufacturer. Um, that to me is kind of the biggest change that's happened in the last five to six years. Um, and I mean, clearly everything that's happening right now with, you know, the Trump tariffs and everything is also having an impact on, on brands taking a second look at, um, at, at reshoring their goods and in large quantities, which is, which is really good for, um, for us manufacturers, because if they have, uh, if they have large clients that, you know, are going to kind of cushion their bottom line. They're more open to, you know, working with smaller brands as well. Like it gives them a little bit more leeway um, as a business. So I think to me, those are some two really big changes. Now comparing my experience with the startup brand to to what I'm doing now, um, you know, that startup brand was solely manufacturing in India. Oh, okay. It's not, we didn't look into um, U.S. manufacturing back then. Okay, gotcha. And, and mainly because of price. Yeah. Um, I mean, the pr- it was a very, uh, you know, price-driven, price-conscious brand. So. Okay, gotcha. Um, and then I'm, I'm really, like, excited to hear you say you found so many great partners and suppliers and vendors locally in New Orleans or, you know, just locally here in the States because I think that that can be a challenge is finding the right partners who are qualified and who are trusted and then also just finding the labor force because I know, you know, some other people I've interviewed on the show who run small factories here in the States, finding the labor, the people who are actually willing to do the the hand labor, you know, drafting and Mm -hmm. making the patterns and cutting and sewing the samples is a really, really big challenge. So it is. Yeah. Is that something you're seeing? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely not. I can tell that these, um, you know, these vendors are, their services are highly valued for a reason, you know, because not that many people still know how to do this by hand. Um, and, and, I mean, this was, you know, before my time is, you know, when the U.S. was like one of the biggest clothing manufacturing, you know, countries, um, all of those people like lost jobs. And it's like a whole different generation, and a whole generation basically went by that didn't learn those skills Yeah. Um, because of um, shipping all of these jobs overseas. So I can, I can definitely understand um, a factory's, uh, you know, struggle to, to find the right the right laborers. And it took me a year of, of, so before I started this company a year ago, I spent a whole year searching for the right manufacturing partners um, that have the right labor force and the right skilled workforce and have the right experience and the right um, prices. 
and um, spent a lot of time visiting factories and, and meeting owners and everything. Okay, <laughs> so you, yeah, you spent a year kind of finding the right resources for you to then connect your, your clients with. Exactly, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's really cool, and that's really awesome that you've been able to find, find the right partners, because I know that can be, like, a huge part of the battle. Um, what is, uh, what is like one of the number one mistakes you see startup designers making either before they come to talk to someone like you or sort of during the initial development, pro develop or development or manufacturing processes? Um, let's see. Okay. I feel like. So one thing is cohesiveness. I feel like new designers really struggle with um, is really making sure that there's an overall cohesiveness with all the different styles that they're trying to design. Um, I feel like they have a lot of ideas and it, it takes experience and time to really kind of streamline those ideas and being able to, um, having an outsider look at your brand and have and have so many different splattering of, of ideas is not a good thing. You know, you want an outsider to look at your brand and be like, oh, I understand what this brand stands for. Like, mm -hmm. it's very clear. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that new designers really struggle with. And I'm, I love to help my clients, you know, kind of get into that mindset and make sure that we are um, being cohesive with, with what they're releasing. Yeah. And are you seeing brands do more like full collection driven assortments or, you know, item driven where maybe they're creating a new item every month and continually launching or like, what are some of the models that you're seeing some of these newer brands go after? So both of those models um, I've seen. And then another one I've seen is uh, just the, the seasonless concept of, you know, making styles that can, can live a whole year and releasing it in different colors um, throughout the year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they, they just create and build and really dial in that silhouette and then just update a few colors, mm -hmm. which is pretty quick and easy. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. And just not, not being so tied to, like, uh, not being so tied to, like, that, you know, quick fashion and really trying to, to create pieces that can live you know, classically for a long time in your closet. Yeah. So beyond the benefit of, you know, the, the consumer buying something that lasts and that they can wear over and over frequently, um, can you talk a little bit about some of the benefits from a business perspective or a brand perspective of doing that type of business model? And, and I'll, I'll quickly just add on the reason I asked that specific question is because I think for a lot of people they just think oh I have to do this big like you know 8 10 12 piece assortment in reality mm -hmm. maybe you could look at doing one item and then just like you said updating some colors throughout the year so I'd love to mm -hmm. hear you know what are some of the benefits from a brand perspective of, of choosing that business model yeah so from a business perspective first of all it's like it is way, way more affordable to develop a smaller amount of styles and test the market with a smaller amount of units. So one of, and that's another big mistake that the kind of new designers that haven't, don't have any guidance make is uh, they, they think this is the most amazing thing that's ever, that anyone's ever seen. Like, of course I can sell 300 of these. It's not going to be an issue. <laughs> and it's, it's like, it, it very well could be an issue and you don't want to be stuck. You don't want to be footing the bill for that mistake. So I always recommend that's why I'm like specifically working with these small batch manufacturers because I don't want my clients to be buying thousands of yards of fabric and, yeah. you know, cutting 300 units. Um, I want you to be able to test the market. And, and I've even had some clients make at sample cost, make 10 units, you know, just to be able to, you know, give it to friends and family to try or do little focus groups with, with different, um, different people in their communities. So it's testing the market is huge when you're, you know, launching a new brand and testing it any which way that you can think of um, with a small amount of styles, I think makes the most business sense. And it really helps you get feedback from who's going to be buying from you for developing those future styles, I think as well. Yeah, no, that's really smart. I mean, I think it's it's really easy to feel like you just want to get to the end of the finish line and have this amazing collection that's sort of, you know, air quotes, runway worthy. 
but the truth of the fact, the matter is it's, there's a lot of value in going slow, testing the market, getting feedback, doing some iterations. And like you said, really minimizing your initial startup costs by keeping your, your collection, which could essentially just be one or two pieces, hyper-focused. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. hyper And it also helps the consumer back to cohesiveness, understand what you're about. You know, if you mm-hmm. launch with 10 styles, like you need to be a pretty experienced designer to make that a cohesive line. It's easier to be cohesive if it's smaller. You know? yeah. 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 Very cool. And I think I was, I, I had a call. It just reminds me of a call I had with a, um, you know, always talking to, you know, potential clients. And I had a call introduction call with someone and they told me that, they were launching with 28 styles and they were opening a storefront um, at the same time. And I was just like, how are you, like, do you have outside financing? Like, how, how are you affording all of this? <laughs> he was like, oh, no, no, I'm just using all my own money. And I was like, I am so scared for you. Oh. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I'm, so, I'm, you know, so, so still worried about that person. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, it just seems like, you know, don't go jump in the deep end, like, right away. It just doesn't, you know, when you, you don't have any experience in this, and, and even if you do have experience in it, you don't have an audience, you know, you don't already have that, you know, that brand following, you know? So, I mean, unless you're a celebrity, like, it's, pretty, <laughs> it's hard to, you know, immediately get that, you know, all the purchases right away. Yeah, well, and I think it, like, goes back to what you said earlier about um, even the person who thinks, oh, I can buy 300 units and I can just sell those all, like, it's really hard to sell, and it's really hard to sell if you don't build that foundation and build your audience and get the feedback and do the customer research to make sure that the product that you're creating is exactly what they want and get them a little bit involved mm-hmm. in the process. You can't just spit out 28 styles or, gosh, even four, six, or eight styles and mm-hmm. put them up and think people are just going to buy. Like, it's a much more in-depth process to, you know, go from this idea that, in your head seems amazing, but there's a lot of variables that go into that. Does it fit right? Is the fabric just right? Are the pockets in the right place? Is it filling the need that the customer actually has in real life? Um, all mm-hmm. those little things. And, it, and I mean, even if it was truly the most amazing design and everything fit perfectly and it was the most amazing fabric, like it just might not be launching at the right time, you know, like it just, yeah just might not hit the market properly. You just never really can know. Like it's, it's always, there's always a risk involved. So yeah. um, it's just it's to- like test and retest and test and retest is, is always what I'm, I'm telling yeah. clients to do. <laughs> test, fail fast and, and do it in the most cost effective way possible. Learn and Absolutely. do it again better. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think some new designers kind of have this mentality that, um, you know, if I build it, they will come. Like, let me just make my website and get my all my um, you know products in my in my garage and be ready to to sell these things. And then, then it's like crickets. You know? mm-hmm. If you don't do the, the hard work of building that audience before you actually get all those units in your garage. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's definitely um, definitely tough. Um, what, you know, from the, from the clients that you've worked with and, and the stuff that you've helped them with to, you know, go from an idea to successfully, you know, into samples or production, what is some of the best advice you have out there for people who maybe are sitting there listening right now and they think, I have an idea, um, what, what should I be thinking about or, or what's some advice you could give them? Um, so much advice. <laughs> it's hard to choose choose just one thing. Um, I guess uh, maybe to start, if you are, you know, you have an idea and you're not sure, you know, where to start is to just start by interviewing a lot of different people, you know, go and, um, and make sure that you, you know, are doing your research and, um, and talking to as many different vendors and uh, meeting as many different people. Um, and talking to as many different pattern makers, sample sewers, um, you know, people like me, companies like mine, um, or in, in manufacturers to, before you kind of take that, take that sign on the dotted line or, or send somebody, you know, a check. I think that's, that's always a good thing to do. Okay. 
And are there any specific question? I mean, because I think it can be hard to approach sure. a factory or a pattern maker when it's like, I don't even know the terminology. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Um, obviously, someone like yeah, you works as a great middleman. Exactly. Yeah, and that is a big, um, it's an issue for sure, because sometimes if you don't know what you're talking about, you can, you know, go to these factories and they just don't even respond to your email because they can tell that you don't, yeah. that you don't know what you're talking about. Um, but, yeah, I have, so let's see. Something that, um, you know, the, a specific question you could ask maybe a potential factory and something that, you know, new designers may not be aware of is, you know, is there any part of the cut and sew process that they typically outsource? Because mm -hmm. you would be surprised how many factories don't even cut in their facility. Um, you know, another facility is cutting there and then they're sewing it and that's just an opportunity for, you know, stuff to get lost and mm -hmm. for things to get messed up. So asking about, specifically asking each, you know, manufacturer that you speak with, are there any, you know, processes during the cut and sew process that you typically outsource? Oh, I think great it's question. often forgotten question. Yeah. Um, another one, what type of finished garment packaging is built into the price? So make sure you're explicit about like how you want your garments to be packaged at the end because I've heard stories of, you know, people getting a bunch of like balled up, all their brand new, you know, styles balled up into a garbage bag because they didn't specify in their tech pack how they wanted everything to be folded and tagged and polybagged um, or not polybagged, you know, just depending on, on what you want. So yeah. definitely. And, and most factories have something pretty basic built into their price you know, their cut and sew price that they're giving you. Gotcha. But just make sure that that comes because I've heard that same story of my garments were literally delivered in a trash bag. <laughs> oh, wait, that happened to you. No, it didn't happen to me, but I've heard that same exact oh, story. I think it's happened to multiple yeah. people. This is not as yeah. uncommon yeah. as you might think. Unfortunately, it's terrifying that you think, oh, my gosh, I just didn't. Well, you didn't tell them how to package it, so they don't know if it goes on hangers yes. or if it gets folded totally. in a poly bag. Is there a piece of tissue in the middle? You know, all these things. Mm -hmm. So they just fold up the garments, put them in a stack, and drop them into a, a trash bag, mm -hmm. literally. Yeah, and pre even pressing. Like, I've had garments that I've developed that – you know, if it's pressed one way, it looks horrible. And if it's pressed another way, it looks beautiful. Mm. So, like, making you even have to detail, like, how they're pressing something. Yeah. Um, in, some, in some instances, you know, not yeah. every instance. But it's some, another, you know, piece that's sometimes forgotten. Pretty much you can't um, assume anything. No. You need to be as explicit as possible about yeah. literally every single detail. Yeah. And I learned that, I mean, especially with working with overseas factories. Like, it's... You know, you don't you don't want anything to be not written down because then you can't prove that you said it. <laughs> right. And it's you know, it is really it's truly the same thing with, with US manufacturing. I mean, you just want it all written down and yeah. that's and documented. Yeah. Yeah, and documented exactly. Yeah. Um, awesome. Awesome. Well, so many great tips and pieces of advice. Um, if people wanted to reach out to get in touch with you and ask you some questions or potentially inquire about working together, what's the best way for them to do that? They can check out my website. It's privylabel.com, P-R-I-V-Y label.com. And they can also email info at privylabel.com. Awesome. And I will link to both of those in the show notes. And we will close with the question I ask everybody at the end of the interview. And that is one thing. What is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would? I wish someone would ask me, what is something I didn't realize about working in the fashion industry? I guess, yeah. Before I got into it. Yeah. And what is um, that? Maybe a new student um, is, is that there are, so many different types of jobs, um, you know, very minute, um, detailed, different types of jobs that are available in fashion. And, um, you know, really, you're not going to even like be aware of this unless you're talking to someone who's worked in a big company and has, you know, seen like all the different titles that are available. So that's one thing. Another thing that I didn't realize was how much time you spend in front of a computer. And <laughs> it, it was um, probably one of my least favorite uh, things about about being a you know a designer for a big company was that I was literally I mean you're that's all you like 
outside of fittings and, you know, choosing fabrics and um, if you're lucky, if you're very, very lucky going on an inspiration trip or going on a photo shoot, yeah. <laughs> um, the, you spend a lot of time in front of a computer. Um, and if that's not something that you're interested in, you know, you might want to look into what other parts of the fashion industry you could work, you could work in. Yeah. Which, like you just said, there's a lot of different roles. There it's is. not just design. Exactly. Yeah. But as a technical designer or a creative designer, you are spending a lot of time in front of a computer, yeah. which was kind of shocking to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that. Two great, really, points. I, I mean, I love the the point of, and it's something we've discussed on the show before with other guests of, you know, there are so many other opportunities to work in the fashion industry that aren't designed that can often be a little bit less competitive and, to me personally, be just as fun and challenging and inspiring. So I'm really glad you brought that totally. up. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. And if you just kind of ask, ask, ask away, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All they can all the, the worst thing they can say is, no, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then just ask the next person, and they'll tell you their story. Yeah, very cool. Or go to one of Heidi's events, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can meet lots of people in the fashion industry. Yeah, very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Jessica, and sharing all of your great advice. Um, we really appreciate everything um, that you've shared with us today. Well, well, thank you so much for having me, Heidi. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you so much, Jessica, for the great conversation and sharing all your wonderful advice and insights with the listeners out there. I also want to give a big shout out to my husband, Mark, who handles all of the tech and editing behind the scenes to make the show possible for you, as well as a huge, huge shout out to my right-hand successful fashion design team member, Saya, who makes sure that each episode gets published and delivered to you on time each week. Thank you so much, Mark and Saya. The show would be so much harder without you guys. I also want to thank you out there for listening. I appreciate you so much. And thank you for tuning in to this episode or all of the others if you choose to listen to many. I know there are a lot of people out there who binge Netflix style. I've even had people tell me they've gone back and started listening to them on repeat because they have gone through all the shows and just want more. So that is so awesome and makes me really happy. Again, if that is one of you and you'd really enjoy the Successful Fashion Designer podcast, I would be so grateful if you subscribed in iTunes or wherever you get your shows, as well as giving us a rating. It really, really does help. Again, if you want to learn about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, scroll down to check out the show notes wherever you're listening. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer podcast episode.